And uh, today, happy Resurrection Day, happy Easter, uh, special day for all of us. And uh, I'm going to just get right into the word today, get right into our study. Um, I'm going to set my stopwatch right now, but I'm also going to just encourage you to um, man, just be ready to just have your heart open to what the Lord might be speaking to you. Um, and, uh, and maybe have a, a cup of water ready or, you know, juice or whatever you want to, isn't that great being home? You can get up and go to the bathroom if you need to, and I won't call you out. You can get a drink of uh, pop. You can open a pop can in your living room and no one will know. You can try to open that candy that you're always trying to open at church that has the loud cellophane. That doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. Just listen. That's all I ask. And, um, and I'm excited today because we are going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, think about it. The resurrection. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, I don't know how many of you have known people that um, have died and been clinically dead and have been dead for a few days, actually, uh, that have risen from the dead and are alive now. Um, it's, it's pretty rare. I don't know many of us that know that. Uh, talk to a, a guy yesterday at a branding who uh, had a heart attack and was dead for something like 30 minutes, something like that, uh, and came back to life. Um, so he has some things to share, that's for sure. But three days of death and even being buried, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus has got the market on that one. And so um, I want to share with you guys why the resurrection is the best proved fact in history. And then what the implications are of that. If that's really true, if, if, if it's really true that Jesus died and rose from the dead and is alive today, what does that mean for us in 2020, coronavirus, pandemic, house arrest, <laughs> you know, shelter in place? What does that mean for us? Um, and, uh, and I just pray you would have an open heart, that you would be what uh, we're going to see today is called a fair inquirer. And, uh, and we'll get into it. So the resurrection is also known as the best proved fact in all of history. Uh, Christianity is historical and can be investigated historically. Uh, I think it was William Lane Craig, a great uh, doctor and uh, philosopher and professor, said, suppose we approach the scriptures not as only holy manuscripts, which we always do, but as a written record that was handed down throughout the centuries and look at it in the same way we would approach other manuscripts. Many secular historians have been doing this and they've come to agree on central facts undergirding the resurrection of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, he's been called the Prince of Preachers from London, England, said, I suppose, brethren, that we may have person, persons arise who will doubt whether there were ever such a man as Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte, and when they do, when all reliable history is flung to the winds, then, but not till then, May they begin to question whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For this historical fact is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact and stands on record in history, whether sacred or profane. Okay, let's go to a scripture today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Guys, this is like one of the resurrection passages. Um, it's not so much the account of the Gospels, like you might read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but it's uh, what Paul says about the resurrection. It says, moreover, brethren, I de declare to you the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So Paul says, hey, I want to give you the gospel, the good news. And here today, uh, I want to give you the good news, the gospel. And that is that 
that Jesus Christ came, he lived a perfect life, never sinned, not even once, and, and yet he was betrayed, and he was falsely accused, and he was tried in a sham trial, and he was put to death, and, the Bible, and it says there, according to the scriptures, the Bible said this was going to happen. Well, then he was buried, and that's a really important part of the whole story because you're not supposed to bury live men, okay? His burial shows that he was indeed dead. It was proved that he was dead. Governing officials said that he was dead. Men whose lives were at stake claiming that he was dead and, in a sense, putting their signature on the death certificate said, Jesus is dead, so they buried him like they do dead men. But then the good news is he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. Notice it also says, according to the scriptures. This is also something that was prophesied, and uh, it's also something that the scriptures record for us. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus the best proved fact in history, but it's also been called the crowning proof of Christianity. It's the crown on top of Christianity. It's, it's really the cherry on top of the Christian Sunday. Dr. William Lane Craig also said, the resurrection is the divine vindication from that which Jesus was executed. That is his claims to be God. You know, when someone is set free, when they've been put on trial and been found to be correct, they've been found to be telling the truth, they've been, been found to be valid, then in that case, they've been vindicated. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he was vindicated. Everything that he said and claimed was found to be true. David Guzik writes that the cross was a time of victorious death. It was a negative triumph. I like that. I like the, to think of the cross as something that was good. It was a victorious death. And it was a negative triumph, kind of oxymorons there. Sin was defeated at the cross, but nothing positive was put in its place until the resurrection. The resurrection shows that Jesus did not succumb to the inevitable result of sin. That is the decay of the body. The resurrection is proof of his conquest. All right, so it's his vindication and it's the proof of his conquest. I love that quote today when I read it. The re resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing that Jesus did. Everything else that was said and done by Jesus Christ is secondary in importance to him rising from the dead. Now, don't get me wrong. Everything else that Jesus said was important, but it comes to nothing if he's dead in a Palestinian grave. If the cross was the payment for our sins, then the empty tomb is the receipt of payment. A payment is little good without its receipt. Martin Luther said everything depends on our retaining a firm hold of this doctrine or this truth of the resurrection. This doctrine in particular. For if this one totters and no longer counts... All the others will lose value and validity as well. So those of you tuning in today, let me tell you this. The resurrection of Jesus is the issue. If I had to lay all my cards on the table, this is what I would stake my, all my chips on. Okay? Um, for me as a person, Rory Rogers, I'm telling you, the resurrection has been seared into my heart. In teaching through the Bible, teaching through the New Testament a, a few times, I should say, um, I'm telling you, the resurrection is, is monumental in the Bible. Uh, having been to Israel four times, having spent some good time in the empty tomb, I'm telling you, there's something incredibly special about the truth that Jesus died and rose again. Now, if the resurrection did not take place, then I got to admit, Christianity is a false religion. Let's go back to that 1 Corinthians 15, 12 passage. It says, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. I underlined a few phrases in that set of scripture. And let me just tell you this. If the resurrection of Jesus did not take place, here's a few of these phrases. Our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. We, me, you, are found as false witnesses of Christ or of God. Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. I'm still in my sins. And we Christians of all men are the most pitiable. But hear me out. If the resurrection did take place, then Christ is God. And the Christian faith is absolute true. If you hop down a few verses there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So he doesn't just stay in the negative like, yeah, it's a pretty bad deal that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He says, no, 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 he has risen from the dead and he's just the first one of all of us who are going to rise from the dead. That's an encouraging thing, having lost Loved ones, myself, um, one of my best buddies from high school uh, lost his mother-in-law yesterday. And I was thinking about this, that if we didn't have the hope of the resurrection, then when we lose people, we would sorrow as those who have no hope. The world's greatest enemy has always been death. And it has conquered all men but Christ. It's been said no man is wise enough to outwit death, nor wealthy enough to purchase freedom from death, or strong enough to crush death. The grave always wins the victory. This applies not only to humans, but to all things. Everything dies. Your favorite animal, plants, that rosebush you got uh, from your, you know, you inherited a rose bush from your grandparents. Species become extinct. Cities and nations are gone. They become rubble and, and all people eventually die. All your homes, your new truck that you just got, your clothes, it's going to fade, it's going to rip, it's going to crumble and eventually it will turn back into dust. Romans chapter 8 verse 21 calls this the bondage of corruption, which is also known as the second law of thermodynamics, saying that every system goes from order to disorder and eventually dies. By the way, evolution completely goes against this law. All other men but Jesus, even the greatest men and the holiest men have died and stayed dead. Think of that. How many have put their faith in the Buddha? Or Muhammad, Confucius, Caesar, Marx, Pope John Paul, Gandhi, Zorister. Think of all of our heroes. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan. All of these great men have died and have a grave. I did a quick research today of some of our faves that have died recently. Kobe Bryant tragically died on a Sunday morning in a helicopter crash. Those of us that are country music fans, we lost Joe Diffie, the singer of John Deere Green. I love that song. Country music fans again, we lost Kenny Rogers, the gambler. He knew when to hold him and when to fold him, I guess. Uh, Kirk Douglas, great Western actor, great actor, passed away here in 2020. 
so sad as I was looking up just some of these recents who've passed away, how many in this list of people who've died were even young, promising futures, professional surfers and actors and actresses and models and singers, incredibly beautiful, young and healthy people that thought they had their whole lives ahead of them and yet tragically their lives were cut short. That's all sad and depressing, but the good news is Jesus is alive. It's true that he died and he was buried just like all other men. But unlike all other men, he returned from the dwelling place of the dead. He resurrected his own body and he emerged from his own tomb to be alive forever and ever. The great writer and professor C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Who would you say that Jesus is? Some think that he was just a great man that lived, a really good Jewish man who did kind things, a great prophet perhaps. Some would say he didn't even exist. But Lewis said, you know what? With the claims that Jesus was making, he's either just a weirdo and a wacko and just a complete charlatan and deceiver or he's crazy or maybe he was telling the truth and there's something to what he was saying and you know what he just might be the lord god charles spurgeon that prince of preachers in the 1800s said if jesus rose then this gospel is what it professes to be if he rose not from the dead then it all is deceit and delusion." Dr. Henry Morris, he's famous for the Creation Research Institute, very learned man, said that if all of this is somehow a delusion, and if Jesus of Nazareth did not really rise from the dead, then he's no different than all the other great men who are also dead. He's worse than they, in fact, because he is thereby branded as either a charlatan or a madman, since he staked all of his claims to be absolute deity on his promise to return from the dead. If the resurrection is really a fact in history, then not only are Jesus' claims true, but so also are his promises of life for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a great hope for us today. There's a living hope for us who know that one day we will meet our end, whether it be through the coronavirus or a tragic car accident or a plane crash or or a heart attack, a stroke of some kind or cancer. These things are going to claim lives. But we've been begotten into a living hope because Jesus not only died to redeem us from the curse of sin, but he rose from the dead to be the first fruits of us who will also have that life, that life abundant. I want to give you six main points to the resurrection today. The first of these points is that the resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christian church. After Jesus' death, his disciples were clearly confused and afraid for their own lives. There's no possibility that they could have continued in Jesus' doctrine. And it's been said that there's even a greater impossibility that others would have been persuaded by these chickens to follow them under these circumstances. But with the assumption that Jesus is alive, these guys went everywhere proclaiming the resurrection. And since then, multitudes have been followers and believers in the living Jesus. The importance of the resurrection is shown in that the early church preached it. If you scan the book of Acts, you see that it was in almost all of the gospel messages given by the apostles. If you read the epistles, the letters written in the New Testament, you see that the resurrection is huge as well. The final book, the book of Revelation, opens with Christ's identification of himself as the first begotten of the dead. He was the first one who was risen from the dead, and he also calls himself the one that lives and was dead 
and behold, I am alive forevermore. The second main point of the resurrection that I'd like to give you is not only is it the foundation of Christianity, but there are predictions of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus caught the disciples completely by surprise. There's no indication when you read the accounts that anyone was waiting around by the tomb, just waiting for him to come back to life or rise from the dead. All of this is in spite of what Jesus had told them, that he would die and that he would rise again. He said it many times to them when you read the gospel accounts. This is evident from the Old Testament scriptures as well as from his own words in Luke 24:44 after Jesus rose from the dead he says to the disciples these are the words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of moses and in the prophets and in the psalms concerning me the old testament prophecies would have been clearly understood by those who were diligent to study the word of god scriptures like psalm 16 verses 9 and 10 therefore my heart is glad and my jo- glory rejoices My flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that is the abode of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That speaks of the decay of the body. Jesus didn't stay uh, in Hades, nor did his body stay in the grave where it would decompose. There are tons of predictions of the resurrection in the Old Testament. This undergirds that foundation of, of Christianity. And even if the disciples had missed all of the prophecies all from the Old Testament, they should have anticipated it from the lips of Jesus himself. Multiple times, Jesus gives the order of how he'll be betrayed, crucified, killed, but don't worry about it. I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. Not only were the disciples not uh, anticipating it, Uh, It seemed that they completely had to be persuaded that it happened once it happened. It took the strongest of evidences to convince them that it actually had taken place. The third main point of the resurrection I want to give you today is the empty tomb. And this might be one of my favorites. One of my favorite points of the resurrection, this hollow tomb that is viewable today when you visit Israel. It was the first evidence that the disciples had of the resurrection. When they came on the scene, what did these women find? An empty tomb. Later, Peter and John would be the second ones on the scene, and they would find the wrappings. And they would see that the body had vanished out of them. Those grave clothes had, as it were, collapsed on themselves. In John chapter 20, verse 8, it says, The other disciple who came to the tomb first John, and it's kind of a funny account when you read it in John 20, how, how John ran towards the tomb first, Peter uh, outran him, or, uh, well, maybe it was vice versa. It's a funny little foot race, <laughs> and, uh, and they're all huffing and puffing by the time they get there. But they go in, and when they go into this tomb, they see and they believe. When John saw, he believed. His doubts and fears immediately gave way to a great faith. And when he saw those grave clothes collapsed inward on themselves, there was nothing else to deduce from the evidence except that the physical body of the crucified Jesus had returned to life. And in such an incredible way that it could just pass through linen wrappings and enter into an endless life. So powerful is the testimony of the empty tomb that the enemies of Jesus have resorted to many strange and wonderful devices to try to explain it away. The alternative evidence isn't that he didn't rise, but that something happened to the body. Nobody denies that the tomb was empty. And I have to say in this that the burden of proof is on the non-believer. Some of these crazy devices that people come up with to try to explain away the empty tomb, one of which is called the, the thievery theory, in that the disciples had stolen the body. When you look at Matthew chapter 28, you see that this is something that had already been anticipated. In Matthew 28, 11, it says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, Hey, tell them that his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. 
So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So the Jews paid some money to the Roman soldiers to try to get them to say that the disciples stole the body away. And that was a rumor that had gone around Jerusalem. But this thing was just completely out of the question. The disciples were out hiding for their lives, afraid that they would have a cross in their future as well. Nothing could have been further from their thoughts than going and beating up a a Roman guard and stealing the body of Jesus, caring about that responsibility. Furthermore, the tomb had been sealed, a great stone had been rolled away from it, and a watch of Roman soldiers had been set to guard it. You read about this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. On the next day which followed, the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, Hey, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. And so you see that the Jews already anticipated that there was going to be a resurrection. They already anticipated that, hey, maybe the disciples are going to steal this body just to make it seem like there's a resurrection. And the Jews did all that was in their power to protect the tomb from any sort of um, malpractice, from any sort of of, uh, scheme, from any sort of robbery. There was a guard of a Roman legion, or I say legion, I should say a squad, much smaller than a legion, uh, put in place to protect the tomb. The second attempt to explain away the empty tomb is the swoon theory. The swoon theory suggests that Jesus never actually died on the cross, but only fainted from weakness. He was buried with the mistaken belief that he was dead, and then he came back to consciousness in the tomb because of the cool air. It kind of revived him. And so he arose and he left the tomb. How could it possibly be that Jesus, in his weak condition, after having been uh, scourged, after having been beaten by Roman soldiers, after having um, gone through an extreme period of dehydration, after having been crucified and pierced through the side, after having been prepared for burial, somehow was just uh, stirred to life from the cool air within the tomb. After that, how did he manage to disengage himself from the great weight of the wrappings and the ointment, some 100 pounds of spices that had been put on him? How did he break the Roman seal on this two-ton stone in front of the tomb, rolling away that giant two-ton rock at the entrance, overpowering the Roman guards, beating them up like the Jewish ninja that we knew that he was, and then searching out the disciples This is a little bit on the crazy side of a fabrication of a story. This this attempt doesn't explain how the sight of such a pitifully weak Jesus, beaten almost beyond recognition, and weak past endurance by the loss of blood on the cross, could have completed some sort of a task, transforming the chicken, uh, the, the fearful chicken disciples. He must soon or at least eventually die anyway. Beside this, there's no doubt that Jesus really did die on the cross. Mark chapter 15 verse 43 tells us that a Roman centurion assured Pilate that Jesus was dead. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he'd been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. We know from John chapter 19 that a spear was thrust through the side of Jesus to make certain of his death. And it is written that out of Jesus' side came blood and water. Physicians would tell us that this is evidence of a complete collapse of a heart cavity. It's been said that Jesus died of a broken heart. The third attempt to explain away the empty tomb 
would be that Mary and the other women went to the wrong tomb. It's interesting, as you read the scriptures, there was no other tomb there in the garden. It was a garden that was specifically owned by Joseph of Arimathea, and it's written that no one else had been buried there. If the body had been buried in another tomb, it could have been easily found by any Jewish or Roman authority, or they could just ask Joseph where the tomb was. A few, a few weeks later, when everyone was rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus, these authorities had done everything to try to find the body and try to stop the advance of the Christian faith, and they failed in doing that. If they could have just produced the body, the entire movement of Christianity would have collapsed. But they couldn't because the body was resurrected. The third main point of the resurrection I'd like to give you are the eyewitness accounts. Not only was the tomb empty, but the disciples actually saw Jesus risen. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to hop down to verse 5 says he was seen by cephas after the resurrection that's peter then by the 12 after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep and he was seen by james then by all of the apostles then last of all he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time so on 13 separate occasions, the disciples saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. I'm just going to list some of these to you. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to Peter, to the two on the road to Emmaus, to 10 of the disciples, to all 11 of the disciples. By the way, if you read that they're called the 12, that was kind of like the fraternal name of the group. He was seen by the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee in John 21. He was seen by 500 people at one time after the resurrection. He was seen by James. He was seen by all 11 at his ascension. In fact, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that he showed himself to be alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days. So after Jesus rose from the dead, for 40 days, he would make appearances. He would show himself to be alive, and he would, he would evidence it to people with many proofs that couldn't be disproven that he indeed was alive. He was seen by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, seen by Paul. He was seen by John the Revelator. This is historical information. If it were a lie, the Bible wouldn't list eyewitnesses for, to give you the chance to go ahead and go double-check it, which kind of leads to the fourth attempt to explain away the empty tomb, in which people would say that all of these resurrection accounts were merely hallucinations or visions. Perhaps they were induced by drugs or hypnosis or hysteria. Henry Morris, uh, Dr. Henry Morris, says such hallucinations, if this is what they were, are quite unique in human history and warrant the most careful psychological scrutiny. They were experienced by a large number of different individuals, all seeing the same vision, but in different groups at different times, both indoors and outdoors, on a hilltop, along a roadway, by a lake shore, and other places. Furthermore, they were not looking for Jesus at all. Several times they didn't recognize him at first, and at least once they actually believed it was a ghost until he convinced them otherwise. He invited them to touch him, and they recognized the wounds in his hands. They watched him eat with them. On one occasion, over 500 different people saw him at one time, most of whom were still living at the time when this evidence was being used. The vision theory is thus quite impossible, and therefore the numerous appearances of Christ must be regarded as absolutely historic and genuine. This fact, combined with the evidences of the empty tomb, renders the resurrection as certain as any fact of history could possibly be. There's actually a new attempt to explain away the resurrection. 
One professor wrote his doctrinal thesis on the evidence of the resurrection. He was thoroughly acquainted with the facts and could not deny the facts of the honorable burial, the empty tomb, the, most, the post-mortem experiences, or the disciples' belief in the resurrection. So his only recourse was to come up with an alternative of the resurrection. So he argued that Jesus of Nazareth must have had an unknown, identical twin brother who was separated from him at birth. And no one knew about him. He came back to Jerusalem's body, uh, Jerusalem, stole Jesus' body out of the tomb, and claimed to be Jesus resurrected from the dead. Makes pretty good sense to me. How about you? Oh, just kidding. The fourth main point of the resurrection is the witness of the apostles. The witness of the apostles. It's completely impossible that the apostles could have preached and written as they did unless they were absolutely sincere and under deep conviction of the truth of which they preached. Simon Greenleaf, who actually was a critic of the resurrection, and and I'm going to talk about him in a minute, he uh, would become a believer. He wrote this uh, a book, and in it he says, this doctrine they asserted with one voice everywhere, not only under the greatest discouragement, but in the face of the most appalling terrors that can be presented in the mind of man. Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The laws of every country were against the teaching of his disciples. The interest and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, reviling, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith they zealously did propagate. And all these miseries they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing. As one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work and incre- with increased vigor and resolution. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unblenching courage. They had every possible motive to review carefully the ground of their faith and the evidence of the great facts and truths which they asserted. And these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency. Okay, so what Simon Greenleaf is saying is these guys would suffer for the message of the resurrection which they preached. And yet they went out proclaiming it so boldly that any of our Medal of Honor stories that we read and know and love so well pale in comparison to how these men laid down their lives for Jesus. They had instantly changed from craven runaways to bold, spirit-filled proclaimers of Christ and his resurrection. Such preaching cost them the loss of their possessions, intense persecution, and finally the loss of their lives. But they kept preaching as long as they had breath in their lungs and as long as strength permitted. Multitudes who believed in what they were preaching would suffer the same persecutions. Sosthenes, who was a Roman historian, says punishment and persecution was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous miracle. If they were faking all of this, and if somewhere they had the body of Jesus hidden away, or if he were still barely alive on some sick bed somewhere, or if they were involved in some kind of a plot, or not really sure whether they'd seen Jesus, or maybe it was some hallucination from some weird mushrooms or a frog they might have licked, it's conceivable that all of them, as well as their hosts or converts, would have continued to make this make-believe up right to the point of death. It's impossible. People continue in lies because it benefits them. When they start being tortured for what they lie about or begin to be killed, they give up the lie. Garant Ludemann, was a leading, uh, leading German New Testament critic, said, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. The lives of the apostles is a main point of the resurrection. 
Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? 1 Corinthians 15.30 says. If the resurrection didn't happen, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Whatever the truth was, the disciples seriously believed Jesus had been risen from the dead. They were incredibly brave. They traveled vast distances across the world. They faced enormous opposition. They went through famine, persecution, peril, nakedness, sword, imprisonment, shipwrecks. They'd spend nights and days floating in the ocean. There's evidence that they believe this in their death. All of them were killed except for John the Revelator because of their testimony in the resurrection. Simon Peter was killed by Caesar Nero after being crucified upside down. His insides were pressed out of his mouth as he hung there on the cross. He didn't deny Jesus. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross outside of Odessa. Not only would he not deny Jesus, but he witnessed to the people as they passed by on the road to Odessa. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Herod Agrippa I by the sword because he wouldn't deny the risen Savior. Philip was put to death in prison and scourged. Uh, He was put in prison and scourged and eventually crucified because he wouldn't deny the truth that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten, then crucified. Thomas and Matthew were both thrust through with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned. Jude was crucified outside of Odessa. Simon was crucified. Paul was beheaded. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. James, the brother of Jesus, he's an interesting case. Because when you read the Gospels, James, Jesus' own brother, was not a believer in Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus' deity. In fact, when you read the Gospel accounts, James and his brothers and even his mother thought Jesus had gone a little loony. They thought he went mad. But when you read the book of Acts, he has become a prominent leader in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. Josephus tells us, he's a a Roman historian, a Jewish historian for Rome, tells us that James was martyred in A.D. 60. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Lord so that you'd be willing to die for this belief? Could there be any doubt that the reason for this remarkable transformation in James was that he had seen his brother raised from the dead. In Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, then he appeared to James. Lies don't propagate truth. Lies turn many, cow- uh, turn many into cowards, not heroes. It's been said that liars make lousy martyrs, and yet each of these apostles became a martyr. Paula Fredericks from Boston University said, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying they really did see the raised Jesus. I don't know what they saw. But I know that as a historian, they must have seen something. How do you explain the conversion of Paul? once known as Saul. He was what was called the golden boy of Judaism. He was putting Christians to death and thought he was doing God a favor in doing so. The day the church meets on Sundays is an evidence of the resurrection. Jews met on the Sabbath day because of the law, but these Jews began to meet on Sunday because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you explain how the church has been changing lives for over 2,000 years? Let me give you some testimonies of some additional authorities and scholars. You see, we've studied that biblical, circumstantial, and historical evidence all has pointed to the resurrection. But perhaps you'd like some supplemental evidences to help you ponder. These are people who often did not believe in the resurrection and were even from different cultures. Even secular historians are primarily in agreement with the biblical accounts that Jesus was crucified, buried by a Jewish Sanhedrin member, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the court that actually sentenced Jesus to death, 
that there was an empty tomb and that the disciples genuinely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. The historian C.B. McCullough wrote a book justifying historical descriptions in which he gives six historical tests. What is the best explanation of any historical account? You have to have a hypothesis, first of all. And our hypothesis is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Spoiler alert, it passes all tests. Okay? Uh, here's the, the uh, six tests. Number one, it has to have great explanatory scope. Okay? Why was there an empty tomb? Why did the disciples see post-mortem appearances? And why is there a Christian church today? Secondly, it has to have great explanatory power. It explains why the body was gone. Our hypothesis explains why people repeatedly saw him alive. The third test is that, is it plausible? In the cases that the resurrection serves as a divine confirmation or vindication of those allegedly blasphemous crimes that Jesus was crucified for. The fourth historical test is, was it contrived? It is not contrived. It requires only one additional hypothesis, and that is that God exists. And that not need be an additional hypothesis if you already believe that God exists. Fifth test is that it is in accord with accepted beliefs. It is in accord with the belief that people don't naturally rise from the dead. The Christian accepts that belief as wholeheartedly as he accepts the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead. And the sixth historical test is that it far exceeds any of its rival hypothesis in meeting criterias one through five. We've already looked at that today. So C.B. McCullough, the historical, helps us by looking at these six historical tests to find what is the best explanation of Jesus' body not being in the tomb in a Christian church today, as well as the foundation of Christianity, the lives of the apostles, the deaths of the apostles, and everything we've studied thus far today. Josephus is a great secular historical account. He was a credible historian who worked for the Roman government. This was not a 13-year-old boy with a blog, as Mark Driscoll said. He's an established researcher for the emperor. He was born a few years after Jesus rose, and he lived while eyewitnesses were still alive. He wrote what was called the Testimonium Flavium, and it's from his book, The Antiquities. Let me quote from Josephus here. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. I like that. And you know what, Josephus? Here it is in 2020, 2020, and the tribe of Christians are not extinct to this day. Some couple thousand years after Josephus wrote that. Uh, Tom Arnold, who uh, many of you know as the husband of Roseanne Arnold, um, actually different Tom Arnold, Thomas Arnold, was a professor of history at Rugby and Oxford. He wrote, and, and, uh, uh, and actually let me say this, that the combined emphasis of evidences of the empty tomb, the numerous appearances of Jesus, the change in the disciples' lives, the authenticity of the records, 
and the testimony of 2,000 years of Christian history caused Thomas Arnold, who is this professor of history at Rugby in Oxford, he's been known as one of the world's greatest historians, and he's been caused by all of this evidence to say, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than that great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So there you heard it from a professor of history at Rugby in Oxford. And he said, you know what? There's no greater sign in all of history or the world if you would just be a fair inquirer today. And I would say that to you today. Those of you that are tuning in, it's Easter Sunday. And I believe that it's God that has caused you to watch this live stream today, to watch this video feed. And he would just, I believe, be working in your heart to be fair toward him, to kind of lay aside all of your presupposed biases and to just come today afresh to the empty tomb and to the historical account of the lives of the disciples and to be fair in your inquiry. And you will find that the Jesus who is known by the whole world to have died on the cross He died on the cross for you, for you specifically, for your sins, everything that you've ever done, every wrong deed and action, thought and motivation of your heart, Jesus died for it, to wash it away. That you could be, even though your sins were as scarlet and you had a scarlet letter pinned to your chest, Jesus would wash you as white as snow and remember your sins no more. That you would come as a fair inquirer today and come to realize that Jesus didn't stay dead on that cross or in that tomb, but that he rose from the dead and he knows your name today and he's calling you to be a follower of his. Today, if you would be a fair inquirer, my plea to you is that you would walk in humility at this moment. You would check your ego and you would turn away from your sins You would turn away from a life that has caused destruction and strain, from a life that has brought a wall between you and God. Today, Jesus tears down that middle wall of separation, and he invites you to be a part of the family of God, to have forgiveness of sins, and to be a new creation with hope and life in him. Dr. Simon Greenleaf is a guy that experienced that call from God to come and be a follower Dr. Simon Greenleaf was the royal professor of law at Harvard University. Dr. Simon Greenleaf was one of the greatest legal minds that ever lived. He wrote the famous legal volume entitled, and I quote, or I I quote the title, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. It's considered by many to be one of the greatest legal volumes ever written. Dr. Simon Greenleaf believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a total hoax, a total scam. And he determined once and for all to go out and expose the myth of the resurrection. After he fairly and thoroughly examined the evidence of the resurrection, Dr. Greenleaf came to the exact opposite conclusion. And he ended up writing a book titled, An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. And in that book, Dr. Simon Greenleaf said, and I quote, It was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. Greenleaf concluded that according to the jurisdiction of legal evidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported fact in all of history. And not only that, Dr. Greenleaf, who wanted to expose Christianity as a myth, was so convinced by the overwhelming evidence that he committed his life to Jesus Christ. John Singleton Copley. John Singleton Copley is one of the greatest legal minds in British history. He was the Solicitor General of the British government, Attorney General of Great Britain, 
three times High Chancellor of England, and he was elected as High Steward at the University of Cambridge. He held in one lifetime the highest, all of the highest offices ever appointed a judge of Great Britain. And John Singleton Copley wrote this. I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as the evidence for the resurrection has not broken down yet. Lord Darling, the Chief Justice of England, or the once Lord and Chief Justice of England, <clears throat> wrote, No intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Dr. Dr. Frank Morrison was a lawyer who had been brought up at the feet of such well-known atheists and skeptics like Oxford professor Matthew Arnold and at the feet of biologist and evolutionist Thomas Huckley, both of whom openly denied the resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Morrison's testimony can be found in the book, and it's free on Amazon and Kindle, in the book, Who Moved the Stone? He felt he owed it to himself and others to write a book that would show the lie about Jesus and dispel the mythical story of the resurrection. And looking at all of the evidence, he came to a different conclusion, that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So he ended up writing a book, but not the one he set out, and he titled it, Who Moved the Stone? Defending the Bodily Resurrection of Jesus Christ. A newer source that I've come across is a guy named Pincus L-E-P-E. I want to say Lepi, and that's what I'm going with. <laughs> Pincus Lepi. The evidence of the resurrection was so powerful that one of the leading Jewish historians of today, the late Pincus Lepi, who taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, declared himself convinced on the basis of the evidence that the God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. I referenced C.S. Lewis already. He wrote so many incredible books. Some of the most famous are The Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis was the former professor of medieval and renaissance history at Cambridge. And he believed that Christians were dead wrong. He couldn't have been further opposed to Christians and this gospel they preached of a God who died and rose again. The last thing C.S. Lewis wanted to do was embrace Christianity. However, in 1926, he writes in his testimony that the hardest boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room at the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. All of this stuff about the dying God, it almost looked as if it had really happened once. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has never since shown any interest in Christianity. If he, the cynic of all cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have called it, safe, where could I have turned? Was there no escape? After evaluating the basis and the evidence of Christianity, Lewis concluded that all other religions have no such historical claim as Christianity. His knowledge of literature forced him to treat the gospel records as a trustworthy account. He writes, I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the gospels as myth. Finally, contrary to a strong stand against Christianity, he was forced to make an intelligent decision. He writes this, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen, which is like, uh, I believe it's like uh, his house at the, at the university. So he's alone in a room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling that whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the third term of 1929, I gave in 
and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, wrestling with an overwhelming amount of evidence. C.S. Lewis would completely yield his life to the risen Jesus. By 1931, he would become one of the most influential Christian writers in the 20th century. And those next 32 years, he would shake the world with his preaching, teaching, and writing. He wrestled with the evidence and could not turn a blind eye to it. And I like what C.S. Lewis says. He speaks of this steady, unrelenting presence upon him. And I believe that as you are listening now today, friends, that as a message of truth and reason has been presented, that there has been a steady, unrelenting presence near your heart. It's called the Holy Spirit. And he has been convicting you of your sin. He's been convicting you of God's righteousness. And he's been convicting you of the judgment that will one day come. And that is a gift today. It is a gift because you are face to face with the Lord. And he is telling you that he loves you. He knows you by name. He died for you and he rose for you. And if you would come to him like a little kid in humility and with a simplicity of faith, he will forgive you of all that you've ever done. He will give you a new life and strength for today and a hope for tomorrow. But you must receive him as your Lord. And you must receive him as the Savior of your sins. In John chapter 14, verse 19, Jesus said, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. We have an incredible hope because Jesus is risen from the dead. Because he lives, all who have ever passed away in the Lord Jesus will live again. In John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? I'm so thankful that he asked that question. Do you believe this today, those tuning in? Do you believe that because Jesus is alive, you who believe in him will never die also? You will have eternal life. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul the Apostle says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want to encourage you today where you're at to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And if you want to go ahead and set your Bibles aside and maybe just set things aside, set your phone aside, just be undistracted for a moment and maybe just bow your head and close your eyes. Maybe as a family, you would want to just take each other's hands and go towards prayer. If you've been listening today, you've been given one of the greatest messages of hope and life that the world has ever known. And right where you're at, you can receive that hope. You can receive that life. You can receive that forgiveness. You can do what Paul says in Romans 10, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And I want to just help you with that right now. I want to ask you where you're at. If you hear the Lord calling your name, I'm going to ask you to utter something with your mouth. I'm going to ask you to say something with your lips. I'm going to ask you to be brave and to be strong and to be humble and to check your ego. I'm going to ask you to be like a little kid right now. And I'm going to ask you to confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth. If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, if you want to have a right relationship with Jesus, if you want new life and hope, then right now where you're at, repeat after me, Jesus, 
be my Lord. Jesus, I set you up on the throne of my heart to be my Lord, my Master. All other lords of my life, I topple over, they fall down before you. You are my God. Be my God today. And I want to ask you to repeat after me. And Lord Jesus, today, having heard from the Bible and having heard the evidence, I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And I believe that you will come back one day and that you give me eternal life. Thank you for saving me from my sins. Thank you for saving me for you and for a new life. Give me the Holy Spirit today that I can have power over my sin, that I can have power to live for you, and that I can have a new life and be a new creation. Let the old things in my life pass away. And let all things become new. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to ask you to do a few things today. Um, If you prayed that prayer, if you cried out to the Lord, I want to ask you to send Calvary Prineville a Facebook message. And let us know. We have uh, some gifts for you. We've got a really cool Bible and another really neat book that will help you come to know Jesus and know how to live this life for him. Uh, We want to meet you. We want to uh, help you get plugged into being a follower of Jesus. Um, And so we would encourage you to send us an instant message or or a Facebook message, or you can even comment it in the comments right now on the live stream. Um, those of you that have tuned in today, we'd love to know who you are and where you're from. You can either comment in the live stream, or we're going to put a post on the Calvary Chapel page, and we're going to have you take a selfie with your family or wherever you're at watching the live stream, and uh, you can go ahead and do that right now. We'd love to see you gathered together on Resurrection Sunday, uh, rejoicing in what Jesus has done. Thank you for tuning in today. And again, comment, get in touch with us. If you need prayer, if you want help following Jesus, that's our mission in life. We want to make followers of Jesus. We want to spread this good news of the message throughout the whole world. So God bless you guys. Have a happy Resurrection Sunday.